Michael Bird is a lecturer in theology at Ridley College, Melbourne, Australia. He spoke to us about Paul's conversion to Christianity in the first century and the impact Paul had in spreading the gospel. So Michael, these days you write books and teach theology, but you, Christian faith wasn't always a part of your life. No, it wasn't. Uh, I, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I, uh, I didn't get taken to church as a, as a young boy. I mean, growing up in, in a fairly secular, non-religious household in, in Brisbane, everything I knew about Christianity, I learned from Ned Flanders, pretty much. <laughs> what, what changed? Oh, a number of things. Um, you know, I joined the army as a young man. I mean, I couldn't get into college or university, so this was pretty much the, the next best option. And I was just kind of living a kind of life uh, like uh, young, um, you know, 17, 18-year-old boys or boy men uh, actually do. And uh, I got pretty disenchanted with it and sick of it pretty quickly. And, uh, you know, a friend of mine, a guy I work with, invited me to church and out of sheer, you know, boredom, um, I thought I'd go along and I was expecting just to meet a bunch of moralizing geriatrics and the church I went to was nothing like that. It was some great people, fantastic people, fairly normal people, but they had a contagious love for Jesus and I heard the good news of the gospel. Um, received Christ, believed in Christ, committed myself to him and the world's been a different place ever since. Was there, was there anything that was particularly engaging about that message? I mean, what struck you about the message that meant that you wanted to make that change? Well, everything I knew about Christianity was wrong. That was the biggest thing. I just assumed it was a, a moralizing religion, okay? Uh, I'd never heard of grace or the forgiveness of sins or death I knew, or resurrection. I, I didn't know anything about that. I just, I just used the sort of, you know, little religious bastion society that was worried that somewhere, somehow, someone was smiling or something like that. And that's not what Christianity was about. I, I learned something much different, started reading the Bible and, uh, you know, I, I developed an infectious love for, uh, for, for, the, for the scripture, for, for the church and uh, wanted to, you know, wanted to serve God and his people. Now, you just said you got into the army because you couldn't get into college. Yep. Now you teach at college, so it's a big yeah. change. Yeah, it's a, it's a, bit, of a, bit, of a uh, sorry, bit of a reversal there, if you like. Um, and not being able to get into you know, college, because I was, I was basically like, you know, a, a C-plus student. So, you know, I wasn't like dumb or anything, but I wasn't particularly brilliant. And uh, now I get to travel around doing lectures around the world from, Cambridge to Budapest to Atlanta and uh, it's pretty good it's been pretty good so I, I love the academic life I love um, preaching and teaching uh, and, and writing and studying the New Testament and the history of the early church. We, we want to explore your background information and, and thoughts about Paul the Apostle Paul. Yeah. Tell us what was Paul like when he was Saul and before he had that experience in Damascus if, if we met Saul yeah. Before that experience, what was he like? You would think you had come across a religious, a religious fanatic as if he was uh, part of the uh, Judean version of Al-Qaeda. Okay, because this was a guy who, uh, who was uh, committed to the Jewish way of life, the tradition of the Pharisees. Uh, he thought he was pretty much blameless under the law. You know, he was, you know, he was excelling in the traditions of the elders. And he says he was filled with zeal. And zeal doesn't mean just bucket loads of enthusiasm. Zeal means a willingness to engage in holy violence, to protect God's reputation and to protect the purity and the sanctity of the people of God. And in the case of Saul of Tarsus, he came to target one particular group, 
followers of Jesus, the Nazarenes, you know, the followers of the way. Eventually they'd be called Christians. He targeted them because he believed they were a rogue cult, potentially leading the, uh, the nation of Israel astray. Uh, they, they seemed to have maybe lax interpretations of the law. They were continuing Jesus' critique of the temple. Some of them were fraternizing with Gentiles, even in places like Antioch and, and Damascus, and that was very affronting. But perhaps worst of all, uh, they seemed to have been venerating Jesus in a way that was normally reserved for Yahweh, for the one God of Israel. And because of that, Israel could never be what it was destined to be as long as groups like this were still around. So Paul, with the, with the enthusiasm, the zeal of a religious fanatic, uh, went after them to destroy them and believed what he was doing was good, it was righteous, it was holy, and it was sanctioned by God. So destroy. Determine what you think he had in his mind to destroy. He wanted to completely nullify them as a movement. Now, whether that meant suppressing them, scattering them, imprisoning them, beating them, or in some cases, even killing them. Um, this was a guy who really believed uh, that the end justifies the means. This is a guy who's willing to use the holy, holy violence. And there is a tradition of that. You know, think of in the, in the Old Testament, um, uh, Phineas, who burned with zeal and killed an Israelite who intermarried a Midianite woman, or the Maccabean Rebellion, where the Seleucids try to impose a Greek worship and customs on the Jews, and, and Mattathias struck down a Jew who was willing to sacrifice to a pagan god. He saw himself in that tradition, and he believed he was on the side of right and he was fighting against the enemies of God's people. Judaizers who had apostatized, who, who were compromising the holiness of the covenant people. So if people think about the New Testament now, one of the things they think about is the Gospels. The other, probably key, is Paul. So what happened to go from that to the person that people most think about in writing about Jesus? Yeah, I, I wonder if, um, if uh, Paul, as he became known to us, wrote a, bi a biography, an autobiography. I reckon he might call it, A Funny Thing Happened on the Road to Damascus. So if you know the musical, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. A uh, Funny Thing Happened on the Road to Damascus. He's on his way to Damascus. Uh, to, to persecute you know, followers of Jesus there for all the things they're doing, the things we've just, just discussed. And Jesus appears to him. Uh, he has a vision of Jesus, and we find this described three times in the book of Acts. Luke tells us three times what happened at Paul's conversion. And Paul alludes to it himself in uh, Galatians 1 and Philippians 3 and in some other places as well. And it's this arresting uh, reversal of Paul. He, he obviously is instantaneously sort of converted to Jesus. Not, not necessarily converted to Christianity, to a separate religion, but he sees himself now as called to rather than destroy uh, the followers of Jesus, now he believes that God's glory is revealed in Jesus and Paul is going to glorify him by bringing the Gentiles, non-Jews, to worship the God of Israel through Jesus. This is a hundred percent, so 180 degree uh, reversal, a turnaround in everything he believed, where Paul once believed that the law, the Torah, was the center of God's purposes and plan for the world. Instead, he sees Jesus in that place. Jesus is now at the center of God's plan and purposes in the world with the spirit involved there as well. And he becomes the kind of archetypal missionary, doesn't he? Uh, he he's moved to a church in Antioch and then he goes out on mission. We want to explore that a bit. Where, where were some of the places that he went? Oh, he went to numerous places. He initially went out into Arabia, 
uh, after his conversion. Now, maybe this was just a time to figure out what the heck just happened. Okay, I mean, because just th think about it. I mean, he, he, his whole life, he believed that Jesus was, or for part of his life, he was a false prophet, a false messiah, and, and all that type of thing. He, he believed that, that God would vindicate Israel at the end of history by resurrecting them from the dead. But now he believed God had vindicated Jesus in the middle of history by raising him from the dead. So everything he believes about the law, about who are God's people, their plan, their purpose of the world, what's going to happen, who's going to be vindicated, who's in the right with God, everything that changed. So maybe he just goes into the wilderness to figure out what the heck has just happened and what am I going to do with my life. After that, uh, he seems to end up back in his hometown of, um, of Tarsus in Cilicia. He's made a few other visits to places here and there, but he ends up there. And around the same time, a church in Antioch is, uh, seems to be experimenting with a church where they accept uh, Gentiles, Greeks, non-Jews as equals and accept them simply on the basis of uh, faith and allow them into table fellowship. So treat them as if they were covenantally faithful Jews. Now, Jews had various ways of relating to non-Jews, to Gentiles. Some would completely separate or you can you can eat with them, just make sure the food's kosher. There's all sorts of different things you could do. But this was, this was a sort of a, an experimental church, the first emerging church, yep. if you like, was in Antioch. And they send a guy called Barnabas to see what's going on here, to figure it out. And Barnabas says, this is a great thing, but there's one guy I know who I think can help us out. And that's where Barnabas says, better call Saul. So he goes out to Tarsus or gets in contact with Saul, brings him to Antioch, and Paul and Barnabas then become the lead figures in the, in the church in Antioch. They have a few issues. Some people are complaining in Jerusalem about them hanging out with, um, with um, Gentiles. They kind of you know, get that sorted. And eventually, uh, Saul, Paul, Barnabas, and a few other um, co-workers end up doing some travels in places like Crete, Southern Asia Minor. Uh, some other things happen and eventually Paul also ends up going through Northern Asia Minor, uh, parts of Greece and eventually even ends up through various circumstances, ends up as far as Rome. Yeah. Now this is, this is kind of the church heading west, isn't it? And we think about, we often talk about the church as being from the west. So that, there's that sort of projection, wasn't there? And even Paul himself wanted to go to Spain. So that that sort of yeah. starts well, that move. Actually, Paul initially wanted to go north, uh, northwest mm. into Bithynia. And it's, it's a very interesting alternative history to think what if Paul had in fact gone east? I mean, he could have gone up into like northern, uh, northern Asia Minor, northern Turkey, gone up through Armenia, Adiabene, then gone down various, the, uh, you know, like the Tigris or the Euphrates rivers. There's a bunch of Hellenistic cities. He could have gone down there all the way down to Baghdad. I mean, imagine how world Christianity would be different if he went that way. But no, the Holy Spirit would not let him go that way. It would, wouldn't let him go down into the southwest into Ephesus. He was called to go into Europe and they established the first Christian congregations, uh, possibly in places like Philippi, Thessalonica, uh, Athens, Corinth and, and, and those many places. There are the places the church went, a la Acts 8, when the church with the Ethiopian eunuch is yeah. obviously coming down into North Africa. Yeah, we know very quickly, you know, by about 70 AD, you've got the church spread in parts of the Transjordan, you know, just across the Jordan River. It's in Syria, it's in Egypt, it's probably in North Africa. It's probably gone as far as uh, Persia, and certainly I think by the second century, there's a very good chance that the church has also gone into India uh, as well. And uh, between um, Baghdad and Peking by like the 12th century, you've got like 24 major dioceses of the Nestorian church in that area. So there, there was this you know, very um, vibrant 
church uh, across the, uh, the, uh, the, the steps of Asia, um, Persia, all the way through to India and China. You don't hear a lot about it, but there's actually quite a very significant history of the church out there. So that, I mean, that's a significant history. How do you know that sort of history? Well, we have some reference to rulers of the period, and we have some writings about it as well, particularly from the Syriac church. They've got a lot of writings about the church in places like modern-day Iraq and Iran. Uh, there's the history of the church in India as well, which has its own sort of prestigious history uh, and that type of thing. His writings were quite significant, weren't they? What, what, what do you see when you read the letters that he wrote, what do you see that he's, he's saying that's, that's different and significant? I, I see a lot of things. You know, when, you, when you read Paul, don't think you're just reading some ancient theologian, although Paul is that. Uh, what you're reading is basically the letters of a missionary pastor, okay? Often dealing with the various issues that his congregations are facing. And sometimes Paul can write in pure frustration and anger and just disappointment like in like Galatians. I mean, the way to understand Galatians is imagine Paul yelling as he's dictating it. Like, oh, you foolish Galatians. As I said, when I was with you, if anyone, even an angel, preaches to you another. I mean, you, 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 can, you can see his exasperation. With Philippians, this is a letter of joy. This is a people who are nothing more than a, a bunch of refreshing, a breath of fresh air, who just make his life easier, who support him financially. And then you've got the Corinthians, who are the proverbial problem child of the Pauline churches. And then the Thessalonians, who need a mixture of you know, encouragement, a little bit of rebuke, to get them on track. So he writes all these letters, which are very situational. Uh, he writes these letters to these churches to encourage them, to, to help keep them faithful. And, and what I think he is really trying to do, uh, Paul sees himself as one who was called to take these Gentiles, these non-Jews, these pork sandwich, idol-worshipping, polytheistic bisexuals to consecrate them to God through faith, through the obedience of faith and offer them to God as being his way of serving the God of Israel, being that prophetic plan to fruition that through Abraham uh, that, he, that he would have a, God would have a, a, a family of many nations, a people of many nations and that comes to fruition in Christ and the gift and the spirit where the Gentiles are being brought in to worship the God of Israel. Paul believed he had a big part in that plan to bring these people in, to bring the Gentiles to worship God through Christ and in the Spirit. That I think is the big picture, the big plan in which Paul is operating and sees himself a part of. Some people today kind of want to separate Paul and Jesus, a bit like saying Paul has got a, got a few things wrong, Jesus got it right, we yeah. should follow Jesus. How do you kind of put, see the mix between Jesus and Paul? Oh, a, a number of things. The, the first thing you have to remember, everybody wants to create Jesus in their own image. Now, whether that's the kind of, um, my Jesus believed in tax cuts for the top 2% of Romans, maybe you like that Jesus, or I kind of like my gay marriage affirming Jesus. Everybody wants to create Jesus in their own image. Now, you've got to remember, uh, at least when you're talking about the, the, the man, uh, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, you're dealing with a brown-skinned, Aramaic-speaking Jew who lived in the first century, who believed he was the Messiah and the Son of God. So anything you say about Jesus has got to make sense of that. And we have, First of all, we have to avoid the danger of anachronism and projecting ourselves into him. But Paul clearly believed 
uh, he was in a sense uh, continuing the message and the ministry of Jesus, but also proclaiming Jesus, because Paul believed that God had, that Jesus has died for uh, the sins of, of all people, that he had been resurrected and vindicated, and by faith, through the Spirit, we, we have union with him and we share in that vindication. So what is true of Israel's Messiah becomes true of his people. We participate in his death, resurrection, and exaltation. So Paul clearly believed that faith is organic to who Jesus was, both as an exalted state and in his earthly life. And he, he didn't see himself doing something separate or something different. He believed there was continuity. And in several places, Paul can even quote the words of Jesus to deal with particular um, situations. Like in Corinth, he's dealing with the issue of, I think, divorce and remarriage. And uh, several places are about the Lord's Supper. He can recall the words of Jesus when it comes to the, the institution of the Lord's Supper as the new covenant meal. So Paul definitely believed he had continuity with, uh, with Jesus, both the earthly and the exalted one. At the time of, of Paul and, and a little after, persecution becomes part of the Christian lot in, yeah. in the Roman Empire. And we know it wasn't all the time in every place. Given that Christians were a very small group of people, why would people persecute them? Why would the Roman Empire be interested? Yeah, there's a, there's a number of reasons why. Um, Christians were just capital O other. They looked weird, they looked strange, and maybe even a little bit subversive. And the Romans may not have always fully understood why they persecuted them. I mean, if you read the correspondence between um, Governor Pliny of Bithynia, uh, who's, who's got people being accused of Christians, and you get some people say, look, I used to be a Christian, but I gave it up. And then you get others say, you damn right I'm a Christian, and I'm proud of it. And he's kind of like, well, what do I do with these people? And he writes to the emperor, and Pliny's describing them, says, as far as I can tell, uh, all these people do is kind of meet um, pray, worship, and promise not to do anything illegal, but they, they refuse to worship our gods. And, uh, and, and if they're guilty, uh, basically on the spot, you can kill them. Merely being found to be a professing Christian was a capital offense. And that's because what the Christians did, they were, they, they were considered the equivalent of being atheists. They refused to worship the gods that provide benefaction and uh, beneficence and, and, and blessings for the Roman people. And because they did that, they were regarded as treasonous and treacherous. And then there's all sorts of rumors like, you know, they engage in cannibalism and or they do the holy kiss, so therefore they're all kind of sexually debauched, that type of thing. So it was a mixture of, of, of rumor and regarding them as somewhat seditious in a sense, because the Romans didn't mind if you had your own kind of weird, funky religion, but it had to be integrated within the Imperium, within the power structures, the patronage, and the benefaction of the empire. The minute you went out of that, or started talking about another Lord of the world, other than Caesar, that's when you were regarded as something as not just a novelty, but a bit of a threat. So why then would Constantine allow Christianity to be the, the religion of the Roman Empire? Well, there could be all sorts of uh, reasons with that, and you can consult biographies of Constantine. He may just thought of, you know, Christianity was on the rise, this is the horse to back in the future. Or it may well be that Constantine had a, a genuine experience, some sort of religious experience, 
that compelled him to side with Christians and to believe this, this was the future for the empire. I mean, the empire did not become like instantaneously Christian. Uh, that took like the better part uh, really of a hundred years for that to happen. Uh, but Christianity went from being persecuted quite horribly to being um, uh, permitted and in some degree even uh, or strongly even uh, sponsored uh, by the uh, imperial apparatus. Yeah, here we are 2,000 years after the time of Jesus. Uh, there are people still going around the world on mission, uh, trying to spread the message of Jesus, yep. often in the face of persecution, in very di difficult circumstances. What was it about Jesus that 2,000 years later, people still want to do that in the face of persecution? I, I think it's, it's a, a number of things. I think it's, uh, G Jesus says, you know, that he is the one who is bringing the kingdom of God. You know, he has the words of eternal life. You know, to take his, to take his, you know, to take, take my yoke upon you, that, that, that type of thing, because he is the good shepherd. Uh, he is the one who, who comes to seek and save the lost, uh, because he promises to be a brother to those to, uh, who are weak and oppressed uh, because he's not safe, uh, but he's good, uh, if, if, if you like. Uh, and I think that's what's so magnetic. Jesus gives people hope. He inspires them to be good. He, he creates, he shows us what a humanity can look like if it's redeemed and, and renewed and if it's conformed to the image of him. And I think that's why Jesus has been so magnetic over the centuries. And that is why to this day, even somewhere like Australia, which is very secular and has a sort of, you know, fairly low religious observance, whenever they put on Jesus Christ Superstar, you know, I mean, the theology notwithstanding, whenever they put on Jesus Christ Superstar, it sells to packed houses. This is why still, you know, in the media, uh, people want to know about, you know, religion and who is Jesus. This is why people still want to know about Jesus, the game changer. Jesus said, take the, the gospel to the ends of the earth. Globally, geographically, we're kind of there. So what does the phrase to the ends of the earth mean to you? Well, I think it means not just going to each geographical bit, but also going to each ethnic group. You know, because our world is divided, or, or, or if you like, um, stratified, not just geographically, but all the, you know, the different groups there, you know, the different cultures, tribes, uh, languages, uh, and people groups. And there are still some that uh, live in fairly uh, remote uh, or sparse places. Uh, so I, I think that part of the mission is doing that, just going to every people group of the world. And the, the, the phrase of this series is Jesus the Game Changer. So what does Jesus the Game Changer as a, as a thought, as an idea mean for you? Well, Jesus changed my life. Uh, he's still changing my life and I see him changing the life of so many other people. So I think it's a, it's, it's a, good, a good worthy topic for a series to do uh, because Jesus has always been in the business of changing people's lives, um, starting with his closest followers and particularly with people like the Apostle Paul. And if uh, God can change people like the Apostle Paul, a fierce persecutor against him, uh, then he can certainly change anyone. Spo